Hello lovelies, and welcome back to another episode of Not A Floating Head. First, I want to apologize for the amount of time it has taken me to get this second episode with Dr. Vanessa up and out. I have had quite a few things going on in my life that have been very positive, but have kept me very busy. So I do want to apologize for taking so long to get this episode out. Second, I just want to make a note that there's a point in this podcast where I begin to stutter and stammer as I am trying to make sure that I am using inclusive language for LGBTQ plus community. I am a huge advocate and supporter of the LGBTQ plus community, and so I'm constantly growing and learning new ways of saying things that might be more appropriate than old ways of saying things and making sure that I am presenting things in the most supportive way possible. So in this episode, it probably would have been better or just easier, honestly, and more inclusive if I had just said people with hormones and or people who wear nail polish, makeup, etc. With me kind of coming to that understanding, that's probably what I'll use for the future because it seems to be the the easiest way to state it and the most inclusive. Okay, next thing to know, when we recorded this podcast, we actually recorded it with video. However, because it's taken me so long to get this episode out, we've decided not to bother with getting the video up on YouTube because that takes an additional amount of time. And I thought it would be more beneficial to get this podcast out as soon as possible. Okay, last and final thing to note, besides my cat running around. Okay, last and final thing to note is if you haven't gone back and listened to the first episode with Dr. Vanessa, where we talk about why the fuck am I so tired? That's the title of the episode where we discuss chronic fatigue, chronic pain, and inflammation. This is the second part of that topic or of those topics. So if you haven't listened to the first episode of that, you may want to go back and listen to that first so that this episode makes sense. However, I do think that this episode still works as a standalone episode. It's just heaps of good information in that first episode as well as this one. Okay, with that being said, thank you so much for listening. And without further ado, away we go. Hi, everybody. This is Greg. I edit and produce these episodes of Not a Floating Head. I just wanted to give you all a heads up that the audio quality of this episode is unfortunately below our usual standards. We had some trouble with the normal microphones and had to pull the audio from the video recording. You'll notice a few loud peaks above the normal levels, typically when Dr. Watts is laughing. Otherwise, the quality is okay, just not great. Also, the interview itself ran about an hour and 45 minutes, so we're going to split it into two episodes with the second half coming soon. That's it for me, so please enjoy the episode. Welcome back, lovelies, to another episode of Not a Floating Head. We are, this is our second episode today with Dr. Vanessa. We started last time talking about chronic fatigue and inflammation, and we're going to spend a little bit more time today talking about inflammation and the driving factors for inflammation. All right, without further ado, let's talk about inflammation. So I'm going to turn to Dr. Vanessa so she can explain what inflammation is. Yeah, so inflammation is Basically, it's a turning on of our immune system, and a lot of people kind of consider this idea of inflammation as a bad thing. And really, it's such an important way for our immune system to kind of wake up, to respond to a threat, 
to instigate healing and for our body to actually recover from injury and infections. So the problem really comes when inflammation doesn't get turned off, when it becomes kind of this low-grade chronic inflammation. Because what should happen is if we get an injury, you know, if you've ever, you know, hurt yourself in CrossFit, like this morning. Yes. <laughs> Lots of injuries. Yeah. I'm very injury prone. <laughs> I should live in a bubble. <laughs> so, so what happens when you get injured? Like what, what are the kind of, like in terms of, like what have you noticed? Yeah, so for me, when I tore my ACL, it wasn't necessarily a pain response because my fight or flight had kicked in and so I didn't necessarily feel pain but what I noticed was that my knee was quite swollen and my understanding is, is that the reason when you get an injury things swell is that those muscles are swelling to protect that injury from becoming worse essentially so your body is bracing where that injury is and that's my understanding of inflammation absolutely it's it's a you know your body's innate wisdom telling you to stop okay we're injured stop moving that joint you know it's inflamed so, you know, in terms of you know, the cardinal signs of inflammation, of course, we have this idea of swelling. There's also sometimes a lot of heat and obviously a lot of pain. And all of these are signs, you know, you're hurt and you need to kind of stop whatever you're doing. And so which happened is that inflammation kind of process happens, um, you know, in the way it should is, you know, you, the, the area that's hurt gets kind of immobilized. And then as the immune system starts to wake up, you know, there's all this signaling between the different cells. And, um, you know, the, the body will come in and, you know, pick up, you know, begin the healing process. And inflammation is really important for healing. And again, you know, the same thing when you have an infection. So if, um, if you have a virus or a bacterial infection, you tend to get a lot of swelling. Sometimes you get a fever as well. And all of these are ways that your body's, you know, upregulating the response to be able to clear that infection or heal that injury. So when you're speaking of viruses and, and infections, so when we get the flu, is that part of why we feel achy? Absolutely. Is because that inflammation achy. is happening. Yeah. And also, you know, also why we feel fever. So, you know, part oh. of our, our immune system's inflammatory response is kicking up, kicking up the heat of the body. And when, when the body's a little bit warmer, it gives the, the immune system a little bit more energy. It's, it's you know, it, it can help to immobilize the, the bacteria or the virus, but help to increase the, the energy of the immune cells, you know, because they have a little bit more heat around. So I think that's interesting to note is that Vanessa keeps saying immune system. So your immune system has a lot to do with inflammation and both the positives and the negatives of our uh, inflammation, correct? Absolutely. Okay. So, so again, inflammation is very appropriate and, and the way it kind of works is, you know, there's so many different players in the immune system. You know, there, we have white blood cells, we have macrophages, we have our innate immune system and our adaptive immune system. And when that's all working correctly, when there's a, an injury or an infection in the body, the immune cells, they start to kind of talk to each other and they send little text messages to tell each other what to do and um, how to respond appropriately to whatever the, the threat is. Mm. The problem happens when there's when, when either the texting becomes excessive and you know the immune system is trying to call on other cells and the other cells are not responding appropriately. And so what should happen is um, the immune system starts, starts to kind of upregulate inflammation um, and then you know we, we mobilize a joint and then um, inflammation also is really important in injury to increase the release of stem cells to kind of come in and heal the injury. But what can happen is if that if that um, inflammatory response doesn't get turned off, if it becomes kind of low grade and chronic because there's an issue with the way the immune cells are talking to each other, that's really the problem here. And acute inflammation, you know, appropriate inflammation when you're sick or when you have an injury is very good. And that's part of the healing process. The problem is when that inflammation doesn't get turned off, it's not resolved, and it just becomes kind of low grade, ineffective, and just kind of chronic. 
And now we know that you know, in chronic inflammation is probably the root cause of almost all chronic disease from you know, Alzheimer's dementia to even um, metabolic syndrome and diabetes. So. There's so much research coming out now um, about inflammation and, and chronic disease, as well as mental health, which I think probably what I'll do is maybe a little bit of a shorter episode um, on my own or with Dr. Vanessa, depending on if she feels like it, where I talk a bit about the research and inflammation and mental health, but I don't want to throw that in today because we've got so much uh, we're talking about with chronic fatigue. So I just want to reiterate a couple things that you said, Vanessa. So upregulate, uh, that's a very medical term. So does that mean uh, to like turn <laughs> ramp on? Ramp up. Yeah, ramp, ramp up. up. Turn on. Turn up the, the volume. Yeah, yeah. And that's what we want when we have an injury is we want it to turn on. But then what we want is it to deregulate or turn down when that injury is no longer, or when there's no longer a threat, whether it's an infection or an injury. And where chronic inflammation is, is no longer acute, meaning you no longer have that energy, that energy, that, um, what am I trying to say? Not energy, um, injury. Injury, injury or infection. <laughs> Clearly my brain cells aren't working so well today. We'll come back to mitochondrial function. Yeah, we're going to talk about that. I need that. <laughs> But that injury is no longer there, but your inflammation has become chronic. And I know for me, that was, uh, that's been a big issue with my endometriosis, which we talked a little bit about in the last episode. Again, there will be an endometriosis specific episode and hormone specific episode. But I, what I want to say is that for me, I didn't feel any pain because the injury was gone. So there was no more pain, but the inflammation was still turned on. So you can have inflammation and not know necessarily that you have inflammation. Um, you'll know in other ways, but it's not always through pain. Correct? Absolutely. And it's oftentimes through things like you know, fatigue syndromes or you know brain fog, things like that are, are big um, signs of... I just gave you an example of brain fog. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Sorry, I interrupted you. <laughs> So that low-grade inflammation that kind of that can kind of spur on or drive chronic diseases, that's also one of the underlying mechanisms or one of the underlying mechanisms for how it does that is that chronic inflammation actually interferes with the way our cells produce energy. It makes it Mm. less effective. And then we have this really annoying feedback or really annoying kind of um, feedback that happens where inflammation turns down energy production and low energy states in the body are actually can spur on inflammation so we wow. can get kind of caught in the cycle like a negative feedback loop essentially yeah, yeah positive feedback or positive yes plus plus i positive. should know that because yes. i'm a psychologist i should know the difference between positive and negative <laughs> <laughs> i'm a doctor <laughs> all right let's talk about some of the things that actually um do you want to move on to talking about some of the yeah, things that actually cause inflammation so like a good way to think about it is the inflammation basically like the volume switch in your immune system so when there's injury or infection, you want to turn up the volume to get everyone excited and get everyone dancing and go to kind of um, respond to a threat. After the party or after you know the, the threat is cleared, you want to turn back down the volume so the neighbors don't call noise control. <laughs> <laughs> that would be me. I'd be the one calling noise control. I'm an old lady. I'm crotchety. <laughs> so, so the problem would be if just the volume's not turned up high enough, so the immune system never gets excited enough to kind of go fight infection or, or you know, clear bacteria or actually heal an injury. And then it just kind of stays at that low volume and there's never really a resolution to that inflammation. So with all of that being said, let's talk a little bit about what some of the, our reasoning behind inflammation or what are some of the triggers for inflammation that doesn't turn back down when it's supposed to. Yeah. 
So I mean, from a from a kind of a medical, biomedical, scientific point of view, the two things that activate or that, that cause the the immune system volume or the inflammation to get turned up are kind of fun words are called PAMPs and DAMPs. Ooh, so there's our <laughs> They're called damage associated molecular patterns. So there's basically little bits of protein, little bits of code that come from damage. So that's either when you damage a joint, when there's um, damage to a blood vessel, something like that or a PEMP, which is a pathogen-associated molecular protein. So that would be a little bit of um, a little bit of amino acid sequence or code that isn't your body. It's it's part of it's it's come from a bacteria or a virally infected mm, cell or a cancer cell. So those are the things that basically will trigger the immune response. And among those things, so evolutionary, that made a lot of sense. You know, all we had in our environment were you know, bacteria, viruses, and you know, we get injured. But the problem really comes you know comes around now in our modern world is there's lots of things that the immune system kind of will will interpret as mm -hmm. a as a you know a foreign invader but it's yeah. not actually able to be cleared in the same way a bacteria a fungus or virus would be cleared you know the big one the big things that kind of can spur on that that inflammatory response are things like um toxins in our environment you know heavy metals you know they, that that makes cells look really weird so the immune system will respond to those cells that, that maybe are contaminated with heavy metals thinking they're bacteria but obviously they're not so it's really mm. hard to clear heavy metals things like pesticide residues look really weird to the immune system and and can, can kind of turn on inflammation because the immune system thinks you know what is this i want to clear it but it's not bacteria it doesn't work and so that immune response doesn't get um doesn't get resolved it just kind of keeps going because there's you know these things coming in the body and they look weird and it just kind of keeps that process going and as far as pesticides go, the the popular one that everybody talks about, obviously, is pesticides on our food. Mm. But there's actually other pesticides as well. There's pesticides that you use in your garden that mm. you might be breathing in when you're spraying your garden, you know, your weed killer and things like that. But there's also, um, I don't know if you call them pesticides, but chemicals, like mm. the anti-inflammatory um, anti stuff that they put on our furniture, basically. Oh, fire retardants. Fire retardants, yeah, that's it, thank you. Yeah. Um, that also, has been known to cause problems as well. So the big popular one that everybody talks about obviously is eating organic food so that you hope that you don't get those pesticides on your food, but there's more than just that particular pesticide. Absolutely, in terms of our kind of exposure to toxins is technically the incorrect word, it's toxicants. So environmental toxicants are things that will, um, you know, upset the body, interfere with hormones, or you know, in our case, potentially increase um, inflammation. Our you know, household chemicals are a big one. You know, a lot of the cleaning products we use, unless they're natural, um, a lot of personal care products. Mm -hmm. So I think Rob wants to do a whole episode on these. Yeah. They're huge issues. Speaking of cleaning products, before we move on to things like nail polish and perfumes and all of that stuff, I had an aunt that passed away from cancer. And one of the things that they think caused her lung cancer, because she never smoked a day in her life, was cleaning with uh, bleach. Mm. She, she had OCD, and I mean actual OCD, not OCD tendencies. And so she would pull the stove out, she would scrub everything with bleach every day of her life, and her lungs basically wasted away. So Clorox, while Clorox is great, and we need it sometimes, um, that is one of those situations where uh, you can actually see the result of the, the negative result of using this over time. Um, I, one of the things I'm really passionate about that, that Vanessa and I talk about quite often are the toxins or toxicants that are in our things, like especially for um, people with hormones, would be our nail polish, 
or perfumes. I unfortunately am a big perfumer. I love essential oils. I, love I know, and I have so many essential oils, but I still can't let go of my perfumes. Um, but one of the things that I think is important for us to talk about is teenagers, mm-hmm. and and I'm trying to be. Sensitive to uh, the trans community as well, so I'm mm-hmm. sorry as I stutter over my language. I'm trying to say, you know, girls or people who are who identify as girls, um, or even uh, people who identify as male that are biologically female. Sorry, guys, I will work on my 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 language to make sure it's inclusive. Um, but that nail polish and perfumes and makeup and like all of these things that we put on our bodies does severely impact our hormones and can create endometriosis and all kinds of things. Obviously I'll let Vanessa talk about that a little bit more, but we had both, we're both really passionate about making sure that we get that word out there, especially anybody who has children, you know, teenagers that are constantly piling on the makeup from wherever it's from Amazon. You don't know what's in it. You don't know what's in your nail polish, all of that stuff. Yeah. And a bit, a big thing as well is, you know, if you think about when, um, you know, it's, People then they find it's women mostly, but it's also men within mm. all the axe body sprays and mm. stuff. It's usually after the shower, and when we have a hot shower, basically we're opening up our pores. And if we go then and kind of you know douse ourselves in some mm-hmm. of those endocrine or hormone disrupting chemicals, potentially those could you know you, you get a higher exposure rate. So it's yeah. definitely a huge issue. Or maybe even shape after shape. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. just being really mindful of that. No, it's a huge issue, and we'll definitely talk more about the hormone disruption because you know over the years. Just because of all the estrogenic, you know, personal care products, things in plastics, a lot of things are actually known as phytoestrogens or um, xenoestrogens. Mm. So they look like estrogen in the body. And so, you know, over years we've seen, you know, since the 70s, male sperm count be decreasing, increasing. The average testosterone level in men is, is lower and lower. Mm. And just even in women, you know, having too much estrogen or estrogen dominance, which mm. drives endometriosis mm-hmm. potentially in the conditions, is a huge problem. Yeah. And so that would be another uh, potential link to inflammation as well. Absolutely. Would be all of those the chemicals and stuff. Yep. Hormone mm-hmm. disruption. Do we want to talk about hormone disruption or what would you like yeah, to talk so, about next? So another, okay. another kind of driver of inflammation is, is our hormones and hormone dis- disruption. So having um, in women, you know, having too much estrogen, not a progesterone, that can kind of drive the inflammatory process. But um, probably the biggest one in terms of um, in terms of hormones and inflammation is kind of the stress response and our, our, mm. our stress hormone cortisol. So we talked a little bit or kind of briefly mentioned in the last episode about fight or flight response and a stress response. And, and so what we're talking about here is an actual physiological stress that happens in the body. Yes, you may feel stressed, but what we're actually talking about is a physiological reaction. So I just want to say, I just want that to be very clear because what we mentioned in the last episode is how frustrated it can be when you go to a medical doctor and you or you have chronic fatigue and you have these things and they tell you it's just stress, go see a psychologist. You may, yes, we all have stress in our life, but what that medical doctor should say is, let's look into how your stress response in the body may be negatively impacting you, right? Not just it's all in your head, your stress, go see a psychologist. Okay, so with that being said, I'm going to talk about the fight or flight response. Most people have heard of the fight or flight response. It's a biological reaction that we were all, we're all born with. And it is that little voice in our head that tells us danger. Something's wrong. Okay. And what happens is we're going about our day 
and let's say back in the day, right, when we were living in caves, we were cavemen. We're going, we're we're going about picking our berries and stuff, and all of a sudden, something has alerted us that there's a predator, right? <laughs> so the what happens physiologically in the body is our breathing is going to shift from our belly up into our chest. If we were breathing from the belly to begin with, that's a whole another episode. <laughs> Most of us are not breathing from our belly, and also right? how breathing can impact inflammation. And Yes, absolutely. So your breathing shifts, it goes from your belly up into your chest. It becomes short, shallow, and rapid. So basically we start to essentially hyperventilate. Our muscles become tense. Our heart rate goes up. Blood pressure goes up. Um, yep, that's, I'm just trying to think. The breathing changes, all of that changes. Because our body is priming us, it's sending all of that energy to our extremities to either stay and fight or flee, run. There is a third response called the freeze response, but we're not talking about that today. We're talking mostly about the fight and flight response, correct? Um, and so this is whenever we get stressed. So nowadays we're not fighting off saber tooth tigers, but we've got, bills, we've got yeah. traffic bills. We've got children. We've got, you know, things on our phone. That's right. Oh my God. Yes. Don't even get me started on social media, even though I've jumped on the Instagram bandwagon. Hi, Insta. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but we've got all of these things, um, artificial light, oh, you know, which we'll talk about as well, but all of these things that are now triggering our fight or flight response. And we're actually walking around 98% of the time, I would say, in fight or flight mode, whether we realize it or not. And so constantly walking around in that fight or flight mode is like what Vanessa talked about with the dial. It's always turned up. It's never turning off because it's it's actually sensing that all of these things are threats. Um, would that be correct, Vanessa? Yeah, Everything absolutely. I've said? And then if you think about evolutionarily, so the body only has enough kind of energy or resources you know, for a certain amount of things. So when, when our brain is giving our body or when something in the environment is giving up our, our body, the, the, um, the warning, the, signs. The warning yeah. signs and, and we go into that stress response, your body has to prioritize. And because in that moment, the most important things are to you know, be able to run away yeah. or to be able to fight. The stress response also means that you know, right now having a good, strong immune system function isn't that important. Mm -hmm. So in that stress response, you actually turn down the immune system. That and makes sense. Yep. And then, the, then it's only after you know you, you've escaped that you need kind of the immune system to kind of come back on board. So mm -hmm. you know, so obviously after this 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 fight or flight and sympathetic uh, response kind of kicks in, yep. what should happen? Yes. Yeah. Yep. So the the language that we use is sympathetic nervous system, and the way that I remember that is I think of a symphony banging and clanging very loud. That's your fight or flight response. That's your sympathetic nervous system, which we need and want turned on when we are actually in a threatened you know threatening situation. Our goal in life is to balance the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous system. So the parasympathetic, the way I think about this, is a parachute coming down, calming down the system. Okay. And so initially when we're working with that fight or flight mode, what we want to do is we want to ramp down the sympathetic, turn up the parasympathetic. Okay. Because then we're turning down that stress response. And again, when I say turn down, I mean, physiologically bringing our blood pressure down, our heart rate down. We're breathing correctly from our diaphragm, nice, slow and steady breathing. Um, and, and then our energy is allowed to go to where it needs to go rather than tight muscles, um, and brain fog. That's another thing that happens when you have 
people with chronic fatigue and people with chronic injuries and illness, then I always hear this, I can't think clearly. I can't think clearly. Something's wrong. I'm really worried I have Alzheimer's. I can't remember anything. Well, if our body's constantly in fight or flight mode, our, it's sending that energy elsewhere. It's not going to the brain, it's going into the muscles. And so by turning down the sympathetic, turning up the parasympathetic, we are hopefully sending that energy back to where we want it to go and need it to go. Yeah. No, I think that's yeah. a pretty good example. So I think understanding that context of, you know, the two kind of parts of the nervous system and their importance, mm. is just like with inflammation, it's not that sympathetic nervous system function or fight or flight is bad. It's that, you know, we should ramp that up and then that should resolve and we have kind of the second phase. And so kind of how that ties into immune system function is during the first, you know, fight or flight phase evolutionarily, we don't need our immune system to be, to be upregulated. You know, inflammation is usually kind of um, pushed down. Mm. The, the hormone, stress hormones tend to turn down, um, turn down immune system function and kind of keep that quiet. And it's only after you've escaped the threat and you can kind of recover that that's when you want your immune system to kind of ramp back up and maybe you, you heal, you know, whatever injury you got mm. running away or fighting. Mm. And, um, getting rid of any bacteria that might have been exposed to in the, in the fight. Yeah. My goal as a psychologist when working with the fight or flight response is never to get rid of it. We need it. We want it. It is a good thing. It's for our survival. However, my goal, and I think Vanessa's goal, but coming at it from a different angle is to, we can't take stress away. Stress is a part of life, but we want to teach our bodies how to cope with it more efficiently and effectively and in a healthy way. And so when I'm working with patients who have chronic injuries, chronic fatigue, um, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, where all of the stress is just chronic, chronic, chronic. What we need to do is we need to bring the body back to homeostasis, teaching it that it's safe and teaching it how to actually turn off fight or flight when, when it, we don't need it. Um, so that's my role in teaching meditation. I know people always think of psychologists, like I can learn meditation on my own. Why do psychologists teach meditation? I will, I will either go into that later on this episode, maybe towards the end, as we start to talk about things you can do, um, to help with inflammation, or I'll do another episode on it or both. But again, when we're teaching meditation, we're not just talking about, or I'm not just talking about you feeling less stress. I also want physiologically for your body to be less stressed. I also want you to feel less stressed as well, yeah. but I want that turning off. I want to give you the control back of, of being able to ramp that back down, turn that volume back down. Yeah, no, that's a great point. I mean, it's, it's so important that, you know, even my clinical practice, you know, I, I figured, or, you know, it was, it's been so important to get people's kind of stress response under control that, you know, I even went and became a yoga meditation teacher just mm. because, and I can't help you know, someone with chronic inflammation, with autoimmune disease, if they're kind of stuck in that stress response. Mm. And so to kind of tie back kind of that stress response, you know, the, the fight or flight and the sometimes called rest and digest mm. and parasympathetic part of the nervous system, um, you know, coming back to kind of the hormone picture and inflammation is when we're very stressed, we tend to produce um, two primary hormones. You know, one is uh, one is called cortisol and also a neurotransmitter called adrenaline. And you know, those are very you know, beneficial in the, in the short term. But if we think about cortisol, which is our stress hormone, mm. what it actually is, is if you've ever taken hydrocortisone or prednisone, yep. so yep. cortisol is our body's basically natural anti-inflammatory. So cortisol turns off the, turns off the, the inflammatory response. And so when we're stressed or sorry, when we're in, in stress or in fight or flight, our immune system is kind of dampened down. Everything's kind of quieted down. 
And you know, you might have noticed this that you know, if you were working a lot or you're very stressed, you might get sick more often, especially when it comes to viral infections. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of a bit of a connection there. But then what happens is if we have chronic stress and you know we're producing a lot of cortisol all the time and we're kind of turning down the immune system, inflammation stays low. But just like in the case where we have um, insulin resistance, where you know when people eat you know d- uh, diet too high in refined um, carbohydrates, the body makes a lot of insulin to kind of get that sugar out of the blood. And then over time, because there's so much insulin on time, the the body cells say, "Holy crap, that's too much insulin!" So that it becomes insulin resistance. It stops insulin resistant. It stops listening to the signal mm. of insulin, and insulin stops working. So we have the same situation with chronic stress. So after a lot of cortisol, a lot of cortisol, a lot of cortisol, turning down the immune system, keeping inflammation low, all of a sudden what will happen is the body doesn't like too much cortisol. When cortisol is high for too long, we even see things like shrinking in parts of the brain, especially the hippocampus, wow. which is why yeah. we sometimes get really forgetful when you have chronic stress. You're actually shrinking um, that part of the brain. Wow. But then, you know, so that chronic in, um, chronic uh, cortisol release and high stress hormone release the body kind of gets sick of that signal of you know cortisol 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 so so it becomes resistant to that cortisol and once the body stops responding to its natural anti-inflammatory it allows this low grade inflammation to kind of persist beyond when it was useful so beyond mm. the case you know beyond um, beyond an infection or an injury yeah it's a big kind of connection there and i know a lot of people at least in the us have know about cortisol from a belly fat standpoint. Oh, yeah. That's a very yes. commercial. Yeah, yeah of course. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So I know a lot of you will go cortisol, belly fat. You know, I know you know about it that way, but I was really interesting. interesting. One of the connections there probably is cortisol puts on belly fat or visceral fat because actually abdominal fat can have a lot of stem cells. So if you're stressed oh. for a lot of time, or you're stressed a lot and your body's thinking you're going to get injured a lot because it's, it's very stressful. Then, you know, some of, we, we tend to store um, fat cells in our adipose tissue as we get older and our bone marrow doesn't make as many. So it could be one of the ways your body's trying to protect you against future injuries and you know, problems by kind of giving you a reserve of stem cells. Stop protecting me. I want CrossFit abs. No. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm very protected. Yeah. <laughs> No, that's actually really interesting. I don't think that that's not something I knew, that that might be why one of the reasons. Yeah, very interesting. All right, so since we've been talking about the gut and cortisol, yeah. maybe actually talking about gut health would be yeah. good. Absolutely. So um, our, our gastrointestinal health is a big driver of inflammation as, as well. So but at any one point in time, so about 70% of our entire immune system is residing or it's kind of in the in the lymph nodes and in um, the area around the, the gut. And that makes sense if you think about it because our immune system is about protecting us from, you know, invaders from the outside and you know our gut is basically you know and our lungs obviously too is basically the interface between the outside world and the inside world so we have our immune system kind of lining the gut and a lot of what goes on in the gut actually helps to helps to educate the immune system and helps to modulate that that um, inflammation so mm-hmm. either you know turn it on or you know keep it from from turning off when it comes to you know gut function, you know, stress in of itself, just like we talked about, if you're in a stress state, um, your your gut doesn't work well because all of your energy is you know in your in your muscles trying to run away, um, and so so our, our gut function or our digestion kind of suffers mm. when we have you know chronic exposure to antibiotics or we're eating again foods that you know may be laden with you know certain pesticides or antibiotics. That changes the the balance of the the bacteria in our gut, and the bacteria in our gut 
fun fact, we actually have 10 times as many bacteria or 10 times as many bacterial cells as we have human cells. So we're actually crazy. mostly a big ecosystem. And that ecosystem kind of talks to our immune system and especially the ecosystem in our gut. Fine for lining up the gut. And so basically, you know, from chronic antibiotic use, from too much stress, if, if we disrupt that kind of normal balance of bacteria, that that changes the way those bacteria talk to the immune system, and that in of itself can kind of spur on that, that chronic inflammation. And that would be where maybe IBS symptoms start to come in as well? IBS and, and kind of the, even further on, you know, when there's chronic inflammation in the gut from the wrong kind of balanced bacteria, <clears throat> that can also contribute to something called intestinal permeability or leaky gut, mm -hmm. which you may have heard about. Yeah, I think, again, that's a big topic mm. in the U.S. I'm not sure about here in New Zealand, but yeah. leaky gut gut dysbiosis and impermeability. <laughs> These words are a little bit of a mouthful to say, but a lot of people know about that. And and I think we'll talk a bit about nutrition as well. Um, and that, that's where this idea of food allergies comes in because yes. you know, a healthy gut, we should be able to tolerate different foods. You know, we shouldn't be reacting to almonds and you know, soy and everything wheat. else. And wheat and everything else. But you know, the, the, the gut should be permeable to some degree because you know, it has to absorb food and let things in. But when there's chronic inflammation, chronic stress, or the wrong gut bacteria, basically we have a breakdown of the, of the cells that, that line the gut. And when that happens, if food particles in, you know, in, in the lumen or in the inside of the gut kind of sneak through and they don't get absorbed through the lining, then the immune system on the other side gets really freaked out mm -hmm. and, and and gets very inflamed, and that inflammation then can contribute to a lot of food allergies. Okay. So if you have a lot of food allergies, that could be due to you know stress, dysbiosis, or you know. And then would the inflammation also be part of bloating? That definitely could be. Because I know for me, and, and again with endometriosis, it's something called endometriosis belly, and that's where you get very bloated. I mean, and you look very pregnant. Um, like from here all the way down, you're very very bloated. And I kept being told it was IBS, and it was all of these things, and Nothing I did worked until I started to see Dr. Vanessa get and worked on my inflammation. And that's, yeah. you know, getting working on my inflammation, which we will talk about what are the steps to test for inflammation. We will go there. We've still got quite a few things to talk about before we get to that point. But we'll talk about that. And then, of course, obviously, we're not going to leave you hanging. We'll talk about things that um, once you've kind of put all of this information together, what are the next steps for being tested? And then what are the next steps for implementing some of these strategies to get your inflammation down? You know, as, as we keep talking about kind of this idea of inflammation, we also have to keep in mind that if the immune system is, is too busy kind of sending the text messages about inflammation, it's sometimes, and it's not effectively clearing, say, you know, viruses or bacteria that come into the body, and those things become chronic, then that in itself can also kind of drive drive the process further. With stress hormone, we talk a lot about cortisol. Cortisol also tends to turn off our thyroid glands. So when we're very stressed, it kind of turns off our thyroid function. And when thyroid function decreases, then again, um, blood flow to the gut can decrease, you know, we get bloated again. Mm. And our, our immune system function to be able to fight viruses and bacteria isn't as strong. And if our immune system isn't effectively clearing those things and they become chronic, then that's another kind of driver of this um, low-grade inflammation. Yeah, and I know thyroid is a massive issue and it is becoming much more talked about. 
um, recently and well not recently for a while it's been but I feel like lately it's becoming much more people are much more aware that our blood test for thyroid is not necessarily the best indicator of a thyroid issue I know for years I kept testing having my thyroid tested and being told there was nothing wrong with my thyroid but actually in working with dr. Vanessa and her helping me understand levels and what the levels look like and and we talked about that in the last episode about lab work so go back if you want to learn about lab work go back and listen to that episode but it wasn't until we started working on all of these things thyroid inflammation all of that that i actually finally started to feel a lot better um but that can be an issue for people is feeling you have every symptom of a thyroid not working and your gp or your TSH is still good. Yeah, yeah. So that we might even want to do a whole episode just on thyroid at some yeah, point. It's such an important thing. And it's frustrating too, generally, because I mean, there's quite a bit of evidence showing that you know our TSH, which is you know the, the general test screening test for thyroid, can can look normal for about five to eight years into kind of you know hypo or um, poor functioning of the thyroid gland. So you know. And mostly here we are talking, mostly we're talking about hypothyroid, which would be underactive thyroid. That's more, that's when you're chronically fatigued and tired. Hyperthyroid is when it's overactive and oftentimes can mimic a little bit of mania, like bipolar, where people get, they may feel really anxious. They may be sweating all the time. They are losing weight without trying. Um, it's, it's sad. We laugh and say, oh, I'd like a hyperactive thyroid, but you don't. It's actually very uncomfortable and can be misdiagnosed as bipolar and hypothyroid can be often be misdiagnosed as depression. So that's one of the things I look for as a psychologist when I'm taking on new patients is have they had their thyroid tested? Has anything else, you know, is that a possibility um, of potentially what's actually going on versus a true chemical depression and a true uh, bipolar yeah, no, it's, it's definitely a great point. You know, there's so many like um, pathoph- like um, physiological processes that are kind mm-hmm. of, you know, written off as mental health disorders, um, I think. It's, you know, like, and I can say my depression definitely worsened with my thyroid issue for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah. And even though I was on medication and that was managing my depression, it wasn't until we started treating my thyroid and inflammation, again, link between mental health and inflammation as well, uh, that... I, I actually started to feel better than just managing. Mm-hmm. Like I felt actually very good. <laughs> I think that's a great kind of segue. There's a couple more things we've talked about, but just kind of realizing the interconnectedness of everything. You know, it's stress, it's hormone function, it's inflammation, it's nervous system tone, or you know, mm-hmm. the balance between those uh, fight or flight and rest and digest nervous system. And it's it's usually not one thing. It's you know, there's there's a um, you know hormon, hormonal cascade and you know all of these things are connected so I think it's really important not to you know look at one part of the picture and say oh no this isn't affecting me because that one part is actually probably affecting all the others and you know while while they could all be underlined by something like um, chronic inflammation that chronic inflammation will affect basically every part of the body and that's also why it's really important to have a team 
of, of different practitioners that work together. So you've got the psychologist that understands that there's medical stuff going on as well that's going to impact, because again, you're not floating head. So whatever's happening medically is gonna affect you psychologically and whatever's happening psychologically is also going to affect you. Like post-traumatic stress disorder is gonna ramp up inflammation, you know, and having a team of people that are willing to work together, even if they don't necessarily work in the same building or same location, but that are willing to consult with each other. Because um, that's the beauty is having a, a nice team of people that can kind of treat all of this. Because it can also feel very overwhelming when you have all of these things going on. You don't know who to turn to. You go, you, maybe you go see a psychologist and you say, I feel a little bit better, but it didn't, it didn't fix everything. Well, no, that's because the psychologist can only work on the psychology piece. Dr. Vanessa can work on the medical piece. Your GP can also work on the medical piece. You know, all of these different, your yoga instructor can yeah, also help you with your stress. <laughs> you know, your your CrossFit coach can help you with your energy. You know, all of that is really um, important to have a good team of people. Didn't mean to interrupt you, but just thought I'd take that opportunity to no, say that. It's so, yeah. so important, you know, and just yeah, having someone or having that understanding too, that you know, that to see the bigger picture, not just kind of focus, hone in on kind of one part and say, this is fine. So you're, you know, you're floating it. Get out of here. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> Stemming on from that, you know, we talked about the gut and how that can, you know, gut issues can drive inflammation. And then kind of just want to link that back to diet. So another big driver of inflammation is having blood sugar that's not controlled mm. or having kind of chronically high blood sugar or, you know, chronically, you know, the wrong kind of fats in your diet. So when our blood sugar is too high, what happens is, especially if it's not disposed of quickly, so it's fine to have high blood sugar, like it's fine to be stressed, it's fine to be inflamed, but that blood sugar needs to kind of get out of the bloodstream quickly. If it doesn't, it can stick to cells. It's called glycation, fancy word. <laughs> and that's why you might have heard of a test or heard of a test called yep. HbA1c, which is glycated hemoglobin. So how much sugar is stuck to your hemoglobin. So whenever we have cells in the body that have sugar stuck to them, that the immune system thinks that's where it's fucked. It thinks that is, it thinks that could be a bacteria. It doesn't know what that is, and that will cause a lot of inflammation too. Because mm -hmm. your, your immune system is seeing these cells that look kind of damaged and weird, and you know, it's trying to clear them, but they're not responding like a bacteria would. <clears throat> and so that's a big um, driver of inflammation as well. So getting your blood sugar under control is extremely important. Um, also having the right fats in your diet is absolutely critical. So kind of to back it up, the, the text messages or the biological text messages that your immune system kind of sends to to um, the immune cells send to one another are actually often made of made of fats or they're derived from different fats so if we have different fats in our cell membranes because we're eating you know a lot of trans fats a lot of fried foods a lot of um, kind of weird things like that the the type of text messages that the body can send made from you know made from those biological compounds tend to be very inflammatory so if we have a diet, you know, rich in omega-6 oils, you know, and that that'll really drive inflammation because that's that's the messages that that, that is the Texas. Where what are you getting omega-6 oils from? So mostly from you know processed foods, uh, mostly from you know, if we're eating out a lot, mm. a lot of times fried foods, fried foods, absolutely. You know, a lot of times you know, we think we're getting olive oil in restaurants, but it's actually canola oil mm -hmm. or seed oil or something like that. And those fats tend to be very inflammatory. And so that balance between the called omega-6 or omega-9 fats to omega-3, which come from, you know, usually marine sources, you know, flax seeds, walnuts, things like that, the vegan diet, that imbalance kind of drives inflammation as well. Because again, the, the messenger is made from those types of fats, 
the omega-6 fats tend to make a lot of inflammatory messages mm. versus the omega-3s tend to help with resolution of inflammation. I mean, and things like trans fats directly, just like the sugar stuck to cells, it's freaking weird. Mm -hmm. When we see damage, when our immune system sees damaged fats, it freaks out as well. So that'll really drive the immune response. I mean, also high, um, so any fats that you heat to a high, to a high degree or, yeah. you know, rancid oils. Yeah. When those come into the body, the immune system evolutionarily has never seen, you know, has mm. never seen that before. And that, that's also very inflammatory because it's, you know, it's just thinking it's a bacteria. What is it? It's trying yeah. to clear it. But I, and I know Vanessa will talk about this in a minute, but I will say being mostly plant-based vegan a couple years ago, I wasn't feeling well, obviously with all of this stuff going on. But one of the things that I learned is I wasn't getting enough good fat. And, as, and in particular, as a woman, it's eating good fat, healthy fat, I think is even more important. I'm not saying it's not important for men, but it really, I think also impacts our hormones and, and stuff as well. But for me, when I, I thought I was doing good because I wasn't eating a lot of fat, but actually it wasn't until I started adding that good fat, like avocado. And again, we're talking about a healthy portion size here. We're not talking about eating a whole bowl full of guacamole because it's avocado and we're using that as an excuse to eat it. But you know, getting those good fats back in, I actually, my skin started to clear up. My hair actually became um, more healthy. My nails started to get stronger again. Um, so it's not just about staying away from bad fats. It's also about making sure you get those incorporating those good fats. I don't know if you want to say more on that. Yeah, no, no, but big plug for kind of marine fats. You know, if, if you're a vegan, you know, because the omega-3 um, fats are so important and they do typically come from kind of marine sources you know, typically fish oils, mm -hmm. salmon, you know, anchovies, um, things like that, because they're so important and evolutionarily, you know, we've kind of depended on them you know, our DHA and EPA, you know, while it's, it's, you know, as a vegan, you can make, um, you can make some of those, they're the longer chain fatty acids. So the EPA and DHA from omega-3s and flax and hemp and, and um, mm -hmm. walnuts and things like that. You do really want to consider if you're a vegan, even taking an algae-based um, omega, uh, DHA or EPA, mm -hmm. because that DHA actually makes something called, in the immune system, kind of talks something called pro-series um, resolvents. So you make um, these things called resolvents, which resolve inflammation, and they're called D-series or E-series resolvents from EPA or DHA. So oh. you really need those to kind of help that immune system turn on and then turn back off and quiet down. Going back for a second, talking about toxicants, mm -hmm. I know that's one of the concerns that a lot of people have and legitimately need to be concerned about is when you're taking a, a not a good quality mm -hmm. fish oil, you could be getting, um, you know, different... Uh, what is what is it that all the fish have mercury now? Mercury, fish. yeah, mercury and all of these things. Um, see, I don't even know because I don't eat fish, but you know, like all of these things that you do have to be concerned about. So, do you have a uh, kind of a suggestion for how do you know if it's a good quality fish oil? Yeah. Or and I don't even know. Even we may even have to worry about algae supplements Absolutely. as well, especially yeah, yeah. So especially because algae will bioaccumulate certain certain heavy metals. Yeah, so we're not getting out of it just oh, because yeah. we're vegan or plant-based. Yeah, we still have to be worried about some of these things. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, a good, you know, good quality, you know, fish or even a marine oil, you know, algae-based um, oil, it should it should kind of stay on the label that it's been tested for heavy metals. Okay. Um, so usually it's a you know heavy metal pesticide um, kind of. They'll have a label about you know it's been tested. And okay. Gone through some sort of testing process. Yeah. So okay. 
and you know, generally, if we eat low, then if we are going to consume, you know, seafood, and you know, I do like to not just take supplements. And if you are eating a omnivorous diet, I do like people to eat some fish. If you eat lower in the food chain, you're usually safer off. So obviously, you know, the algae and the sea veggies are at the bottom. But then, you know, sticking to fish that tend to be shorter lived, that are smaller, they tend to bioaccumulate well, less metals from their environment. So things like anchovies, herring, mackerel. Things like that, you know. Versus, you know, that's why they say you shouldn't eat swordfish and shark and mm. the bigger fish because they live longer. They eat lots of little fish and they'll accumulate all of those, um, all of those toxins. Don't eat environment. shark. I will come out. Don't eat you. shark. No, we, just, we, love, we shark. love sharks. No. <laughs> Don't spot it over a shark tattoo. <laughs> yes, that's right. Exactly. <laughs> Don't eat it for numerous reasons. Yeah, it's <laughs> karma. We'll kill you with that. <laughs> back to the to toxicants, but I think that I just wanted to make sure I said that because I know that that's super important. Again, we want to look at good quality um, versus you yeah. think you're doing something. If we go back to our, our original name is doing everything right. And that's one of those things is people will say, well, I'm taking a fish oil supplement. I'm doing this. I'm eating this. But also knowing your sources of where you're getting that stuff from. The other huge factor too with them, um, especially with those omega-3 oils from fish, is they tend to be very not stable. So they're very heat sensitive and they tend to damage really easily. And so if you're say, you know, buying a you know, $9 bottle of 90 capsules mm -hmm. of fish oil from somewhere, Walmart. Um, <laughs> then, then, you know, there's a high chance that, you know, the, the oxygen in the environment could have caused damage to those oils and it could have been you know, not stored properly, could be heated. And if you then take those fish oil, think you're doing something healthy, but they're damaged or rancid fish oils and your immune system sees that, again, it's this weird situation because, you know, evolutionarily we've only eaten, you know, you know, nice, probably, you know, mm. undamaged oil from, you know, from, from real food, yeah. not seen. Probiotics is similar as well. You mm -hmm. want to make sure that your your probiotics are in good quality, and if they're supposed to be refrigerated, mm -hmm. that they've been refrigerated. And I don't know if they'll have the same uh, kind of inflammatory response if they're not a good probiotic. But mm -hmm. I know that was one of the things that um, before I started working with you, I was taking probiotics and I didn't feel like they were working, mm -hmm. and I didn't know that it was really important if they were refrigerated to keep them refrigerated and things like that. Yeah. Okay, I'll bring us back to topic because I kind of took us off topic. We were talking about healthy fats and the importance of healthy fats. You want to tell talk a little bit more about fats in general? Now, fat, fats are so important. I think you know a lot of people. We're we're finally moving under this kind of um, low fat kind of phase, oh, low fat, God. aka high sugar. Yeah, yes. <laughs> and just talking about the importance of incorporating the right fats, you know, for inflammation. Uh, we didn't really talk much, but about for, for hormonal balance as well. But, you know, I'm still seeing a lot of people avoiding certain fats because this, this idea of, um, you know, high cholesterol and lipid levels. And one thing, I just want to circle back because I always say, you know, while cholesterol is involved in things like heart disease, cholesterol is like, cholesterol is at the scene of the crime, but it's not really the villain. And inflammation actually plays a big role here too. So cholesterol is actually the building block of our cells. So our cell membranes are made of fats. You know, that's what the immune system uses to make those, um, those text messages to turn on inflammation or turn off inflammation. And cholesterol is a big component of those cell membranes. So what often happens is if, if, there's, if there's damage to the body, if the body needs to make more cells, you'll see kind of cholesterol go up. And the issue is if there's a lot of inflammation in the body and there's a lot of cholesterol in the bloodstream, that inflammation will damage the cholesterol because hmm, what, if you think about inflammation too, we should have probably said this in the beginning. Inflammation is like a forest fire. 
So, you know, it's burning the forest down and there's a lot of smoke and there's a lot of kind of stuff happening. And if there's a lot of cholesterol and a lot of inflammation, that cholesterol could be going to, to kind of create some new cell membranes, you know, if there's a damage to the side of an artery. But if there's then a lot of inflammation, that cholesterol gets damaged, you know, from inflammation or also things like smoking, poor diet, you know, too much free radicals, not enough antioxidants, mm. and that cholesterol gets damaged, the immune system then sees that damaged cholesterol and wants to also eat it like the bacteria, it's something weird. And if that cholesterol was going kind of to the artery to, to try to fix some damage in the artery, the immune system will come and try to eat it up. And that's what kind of starts the process of, of, of plaques. Oh, if you think of calcium in arteries, the calcium is actually after the injury to the artery and the immune system kind of trying to eat the cholesterol to, to help. The calcium is actually like the scar over that injury. So while, so while you know, high cholesterol is a problem, it's really the inflammatory response and the inflammation in the body that's actually drives the process of, of heart disease. Now we know that. And you know, one of the most important um, measurements, or you know, when I when I'm assessing someone for heart disease risk, is a blood test called HSCRP. So it's high sensitivity C-reactive protein. And C-reactive protein is actually an inflammatory mediator. And so HSCRP or um, high sensitivity versus CRP, which is just a, uh, more, a, not quite a sensitive blood test. So that level of inflammation is indirectly correlated to heart disease risk independent mm -hmm. of, of cholesterol. So even if your cholesterol is low, and that's why we still see vegans having heart attacks with yep. low cholesterol. Yep. If there's a lot of inflammation, then the immune system is gonna increase the process of tension causing plaques. And I, I, it's interesting, I was gonna say, is one of my reasons for go, originally going plant-based uh, was I, I, at a very young age, in my 20s, all heart disease runs in my family. A lot of my family members have passed away from heart attacks. And when I was in my, oh, I must've been around 23, 24, my cholesterol shot up, despite the fact that I ate relatively healthy and didn't actually eat a lot of meat, but my cholesterol went up. And so I started doing a bunch of research into nutrition and healthy food. And that's kind of when I came across plant-based and but what I did is I went to the opposite where then I avoided all fats mm. because I thought, oh, that's going to shoot my cholesterol back up mm. and then realized that I needed those healthy fats for other things like hormones, um, mm. skin health, you know, hair health, all of nail health, all of those things that, that we look fun at. Fun fact, like our, all of our hormones, our sex hormones, even our cortisol is actually made from pregnenolone, which is one step away from cholesterol. So we have cholesterol, our cholesterol drops in U.S. terms under 100, 150 milligrams per deciliter. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Then we actually don't have enough precursor Yeah, because that's what I was told. Is I went from having my cholesterol was too high to then my good cholesterol was too low. Mm. So I needed to, even though my bad cholesterol was low, my good cholesterol was also low. Mm. So I needed to get that back up. Didn't mean to get us off topic again. Kind of going no, backwards, but I love the whole a whole cholesterol episode because yeah. Also, because cholesterol is involved with making new cells and repairing the body when we're stressed because we could be getting more injured because it's fight or flight. You know, the body's perceiving you know more danger in the environment. Mm -hmm. Our cholesterol will actually go up um, with stress, mm -hmm. and because yep. stress decreases thyroid function, low thyroid will try cholesterol. Up. Yeah, I try to tell that to patients, and they don't believe me. <laughs> You heard it from Dr. <laughs> Vanessa, maybe you'll believe her. Especially, especially low testosterone, yeah. low cholesterol, and, and especially men with depression. 
And I think we started talking about CRP, which is a really interesting topic. And again, something I've been doing a lot of research on because my family has uh, a history of heart disease. What, what else would you like to say about CRP and heart disease yeah, and inflammation? Yeah. <laughs> so CRP is a good kind of general screen for your body's inflammatory levels. It's not that sensitive though. So you have to be quite sick or quite inflamed to see a CRP level kind of jump above you know, two, three, four, five. So, you know, in things like, you know, inflammatory arthritis, like rheumatoid arthritis, mm. you know, um, things like that, you'll see it very high in certain cancers. But generally, it's a, it's a great screen, so we'll look at that. Another interesting kind of blood test that's linked to inflammation is ferritin level. So, you know, a lot of us, you know, we're worried about ferritin being so low, but if we ever see it shoot up too high, that's a sign that the body is very inflamed. Okay, lovelies, that's it for the first half of this interview with Dr. Vanessa. We'll be putting out the second half soon, which contains more great information on chronic fatigue and inflammation. As always, if you've got any questions, comments, or topic suggestions for the podcast, you can send them to notafloatinghead at gmail.com or reach out to me and follow me on Instagram, which is notafloatinghead. Thanks so much for listening. Now go have an adventure.